This morning, I began a series of messages on the life of David and uh, what a life it was. He was a man who was deeply spiritual, trusting, faithful, courageous, prayerful, passionate. He had a tremendous heart for God, but he was also very human and therefore very flawed. He was angry, devious, selfish, lustful, a sinner like us all. Eugene Peterson, who wrote a great book on the life of David, says that there was a certain earthiness about David's life. He was not a man who simply played his harp and sang nice psalms and had his heads in the clouds thinking great things about heaven, but he was fully engaged in life, struggled daily with difficult situations, tough circumstances, perplexing problems, some of the very same sorts of things you and I struggle with. He had to deal with enemies and friends and lovers and children and wives and death and sexuality and temptation and justice and fear and peace and all those things. There's a, there all this, uh, this, this earthy humanness. He, uh, he possessed all this earthy humanness, and yet he tried to live in harmony with God, and sometimes he succeeded and sometimes he didn't. But God kept dealing with him flaws and all. It's interesting that there isn't a single miracle in the whole Davidic story, and yet there's never any question that God is at the center of the plot and is always present in the details. God was shaping this man, David, building his character, preparing him for a life of leadership and service. In the same way, God would shape you and me. We should be careful, therefore, to pay attention to David's story because uh, his story is your story and mine. Did you know that we know more about David than any other person in all of Holy Scripture? The various stories about David uh, make up a long narrative in uh, the Old Testament books of Samuel and Kings, and there's some 59 references to David in the New Testament. His story begins in 1 Samuel chapter 16, our Old, lesson, our Old Testament lesson this morning. And the story opens with the prophet Samuel, who was asked by God to anoint a new king over Israel, for God was rejecting King Saul. Actually, God had never wanted Israel to uh, have a king in the first place. God's desire was for Israel to be a theocracy, that is, uh, a people led by God alone. But the elders of the people wanted to be like all the other nations. They wanted a, a visible a king who uh, could lead the people in defense against their enemies. So God let them have their way and granted them a king. And the first king of Israel was Saul. And Saul, whose, whose Hebrew name means asked for, looked like a king. Scripture says that he was an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than anyone else. He was handsome, and he came from a wealthy family from the tribe of Benjamin. Outwardly, he looked kingly. You could pick him out in any, any crowd. But he lacked strength of character and spiritual sensitivity. 
selfish and mean-spirited, Saul was caught in various acts of disobedience to God, and God had had enough. And Samuel the prophet uh, grieved over the fact that he had ever anointed Saul in the first place. And so we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Now, to anoint a king while the present king was still living uh, would be a treasonous act. Uh, so, uh, Samuel knew what he was uh, being asked to do. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? And Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he went for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So um, picture the scene. After the initial shock of being visited by so great a prophet, and Samuel by this time was famous, prophet, judge, kingmaker. Uh, after they got over that initial shock that he wanted to visit uh, Jesse and family in the first place, Jesse called for his sons who obediently, obediently lined up before Samuel for inspection. And Eliab, the oldest son, was first. And at first glance, I mean, he looked the part. No doubt he was tall, handsome, impressive. By all appearances, he looked like a king. And so Samuel thought to himself, surely this is the one. But oddly, Samuel was about to make the same mistake as he made when he anointed Saul. Saul looked like a king. He was a giant among men, taller than anybody else, really, really tall. 
And actually, this is one of the reasons why a person could command respect in those days. When picking a leader, a person's height often came into play. They were perceived to be more authoritative, more powerful, perhaps more fierce in battle, the guy you look to to lead. I was reading about uh, William Wallace. You know, the Braveheart guy? You know, the Mel Gibson character? You've all seen the movie, right? Well, Wallace was a warrior, a warrior leader who led the Scots against the English at, uh, it was at the end of the 13th century. And, uh, and, and Wallace was really, really tall. He was like 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, really tall for that day. He could wield a huge sword, which uh, made him very adept at chopping off heads. You know, easy. Uh, like I say, people who are really tall and have an imposing appearance have a perceived advantage when leading or commanding people. People just naturally look up to them, you know, figuratively as well as literally. I wonder if that's one of the reasons why it was just people just naturally looked up to George Washington, who was a, a head taller than many of his contemporaries, so that when he walked into a room, he had this regal look to him, his, his, his great bearing, this outward demeanor of his, spoke volumes. So, Samuel looked at Eliab, this first son, and he said to himself, oh man, this guy looks the part. He's strong. He's tall. Surely this is the one that the Lord has chosen. But the Lord said to him, Samuel, Samuel, you're only looking at the outward appearance. I mean, he may look the part, but you can't see or know what's inside him. You don't know his heart. He is not my choice. Okay, so how guilty are you and I of the very same thing? tend to judge people on the basis of outward appearance. The superficial impresses us far more than we would care to admit. People who are well-endowed physically, who are tall or handsome or beautiful or well-groomed, people who are obviously wealthy are often treated in our society with deference and respect. Studies have shown, you know this, that beautiful people, as defined by the culture, tend to be more successful in life. They tend to get more attention. They're more likely to get better jobs and more frequent promotions. It's not news to say that our culture tends to worship outwardly beautiful people. Look at all the attention paid to them in media and all the folks who fawn over Hollywood celebrities. Outwardly beautiful, maybe, but what sort of people are they on the inside? And I don't know, this is just kind of an aside, but I just don't understand why the beautiful people of Hollywood should be looked to as people who know, who are really wise about all things religious and political. I just don't get it. Okay, outwardly beautiful by standards, you know, but why do we fawn over them? Do you realize that they are the saints of our culture? We put them on pedestals, and then you know what else we like to do, actually? We like to cut them down. 
which is why we have gossip magazines, right? But still, the attention people pay to them. I don't get it, but that's the way of the world. So God basically says to His prophet, and He says to you and to me, when are you going to learn? Money, beauty, power, stature, all that doesn't matter one iota. It's character. It's the spirit. It's the heart. And Samuel was surprised. Eliab, the oldest, the one who most looked the part, was not God's choice. And then there was a second son, Abinadab, who probably looked as impressive as Eliab. Don't you love these names? Abinadab. But God said to Samuel, no, that's not the man. And then there was a third son, Shammah. Samuel knew that he was not the one either. So Samuel went through the whole lot of them, the seven sons of Jesse, seven being a Hebrew number, you know, the Hebrew uh, idea of perfection is captured in that number seven. And again, by all appearances, each one would have been perfect as a king. But the chosen one was not to be found. Jesse and his sons were humiliated, and Samuel was bewildered. So Samuel says to uh, Jesse, I mean, uh, this is Bethlehem, right? I mean, this is Jesse. I mean, you're Jesse, right? I mean, do I have the right family? Uh, is all the family here? And Jesse says, well, <laughs> you know, there's another, the youngest, but, <laughs> you know, he's, he's tending the sheep. And Jesse speaks of the youngest in almost a derisive way, as though to say, oh, hell, there's the, the baby brother, but, but he's pretty useless. Can't possibly be interested in him. And the Hebrew word for youngest here, hakaton, carries undertones of insignificance, of not counting for much, the family runt, so to speak. Jesse can't even bring himself to name him. Oh, yeah, the youngest, he's out tending the sheep. So David, you know, was ignored most of the time. He was kind of doing this very menial task, I mean, taking care of sheep. And nobody had thought to bring him to Bethlehem that day to, to see the prophet. And yet, David was chosen. Chosen not because of what others saw in him, or that even Samuel saw in him, but because of what God saw in him. The Lord has a different principle of choosing His servants. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God looked into David's heart, and God liked what he saw. He's the one, said the Lord. And Samuel proceeded to anoint him in the presence of all who were gathered to everyone's complete shock and dismay. There couldn't have been a more unlikely choice for king. David was the youngest, not the oldest. In those days and still today, you know, in royalty, you know, it's the, the oldest children are the ones that have the prerogatives and they have the advantage, you know. But no, this is the youngest. To his brothers, he was a non-entity. I mean, they just ignored him. The family runt, after all, 
In the eyes of the people of Israel, he was very obscure and certainly ordinary. Though Scripture does say that he did have some handsome features and was healthy. But not only that, when you look at David's genealogy, you, you discover he had bad blood in his family tree, Moabite blood. Mixed blood was not a good thing. How could God pick a man with a background like that to be a king? But then again, God always seems to pick the unlikeliest people to serve Him. And you know, it's always been that way. Look at whom God chose to become the mother of God's own son, a young woman of low estate, a peasant woman of Nazareth, of all people, of all places. And what about those, those uh, disciples that Jesus picked? I mean, can you think of a more unlikely crew to carry out such an important mission? A bunch of ordinary fishermen and people of common vocation. I mean, even a tax collector thrown in there. I mean, what? Really? A revolutionary? And you know what? There wasn't a priest or a religious scholar among them. No great theologians in that group. And then there was the Apostle Paul. He was very intelligent. You know, he, he was a man of extraordinary energy and talent, but he was very flawed, actually, and uh, limited in his own way. So God, it seems, always seems to favor using ordinary people. The Christian church first found its first, well, found its first home among people who were not of great esteem or a prominent position or of noble birth. Paul himself made this observation addressing the Corinthian church. We throw, we'll throw his words up there on the screen from 1 Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. Not many people of great fancy backgrounds, just ordinary folks, especially like the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse in his version. Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best among you, not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks, chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? Now, clearly, God's ways are not our ways. When we look for leadership, we tend to look to beautiful people, brilliant people, powerful people, people who are on the make in life. We look for the best and for the brightest. But God says, well, that's not the way I make choices. I choose nobodies and turn them into somebodies. I look at the heart of people to see if they are open to the love I would give and to the guidance I would bestow. 
It's not the outwardly beautiful, perfect that God wants. It's the inwardly open. So that when God wants something done, God looks for those who have a heart to trust and obey. So can you and I identify at all with David? Eugene Peterson points out in his excellent book on David that it's the intent and skill of the scriptural storyteller to, quote, turn everyone who reads or hears the story into realizing something essentially Davidic about him or herself. In my insignificant, sheep-keeping obscurity, I am chosen. How many of us can say that and know it to be true? I am chosen. I am anointed by God to do important things for Him. And you know, there are times when you and I feel as though we don't amount to much. We may feel rather insignificant and ordinary. We may dismiss ourselves by describing ourselves as just lay people. You know, we're not experts. We don't know theology. We aren't religious professionals. Most of us are not in the corridors of power or in high society positions of influence. But nevertheless, we are chosen by God, anointed by Him to do kingdom work, called to be His disciples, called to share His love wherever we happen to be wherever God has placed us. We are chosen, the beloved of God, and we have important, extraordinary work to do. And I mean everybody. You may not think you amount to much again. You may think that you have nothing to offer. Oh, but you do. If nothing else, you can pray. You can serve people wherever you happen to be, even in simple, humble ways. Remember, the cup of cold water matters eternally in God's kingdom. God takes us nobodies and turns us into somebodies who can truly be useful to Him in the world. God wants to use you and me, unlikely candidates, though we may be. The choice of David, family runt, and shepherd boy couldn't have been more unlikely. But his calling and his anointing to be king is a sign that God is willing to use anybody who has a heart turned toward him. So if you ever doubt your significance, if you ever wonder if you are worth anything at all, if you ever feel forgotten and ignored, say to yourself something like this, in my insignificant sheep-keeping obscurity, I am chosen. In my insignificant sheep-keeping obscurity, I am chosen by God. Think about that. It's what your baptism means. The fact is, you're not as insignificant as you think you are. You are royalty. You are a child of a king. You, maybe you haven't just realized it. And it may seem unlikely, but it's true. Believe it. Because God says it. Let's pray. Lord, does this mean uh, that each of us here has been anointed by you to do 
important things, even right where we are and in our home or our school or um, our job, our retirement center, our, our little condo unit, our little condo community? Really? Oh, Lord, maybe I'm not so insignificant as I think. Lord, help us keep the example of David in mind. Thank you for paying attention to us. And we know, Lord, may we be reminded of the fact that we are so valuable to you, so much so that you came to this, to this earth and you died for us. Again, that we might live for you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.